Guys, welcome back to another week of the Relax Running Podcast. I'm Tyson Popplestone, your host from relaxrunning.com, and uh, really glad that you, you stopped by to check out the podcast. If you're here for the first time, welcome. If you're a repeat offender, welcome back. Uh, really appreciate you guys taking the time to have a listen, delve into some of the tools, techniques, strategies, insight, ideas, uh, I guess just observations of the world's best runners. So my goal each and every week is is just to be able to help simplify your process in improving your running and, and save your time in um, you know having to research and make mistakes that so many top-level athletes have already been through. So if you enjoy the podcast, uh, we've got a relaxed running community that is um, starting to develop. It's $5 a month um, at relaxrunning.com. If you just click on membership there, it'll give you access to a whole heap of bonus um, material from the podcast, behind the scenes from the podcast. Uh, today is actually a great example. And uh, Andrew Weeding, the guest on the show today, uh, and I record another bonus episode, which we delve a little bit uh, into just simple ways that athletes of all levels can improve their running. Really recommend that one for college athletes, for new athletes, uh, just really honestly anyone who's just trying to improve their their game. So we had a lot of fun off the uh, uh, off the air, I guess you would say, or in the podcast bonus episode. So if you want to get your hands on that, jump on over. It's only five dollars a month at the moment for the first one hundred members. So uh, make the most of that. You'll never pay more, no matter how much those prices go up. But uh, that's enough of that. Today on the podcast, I mentioned his name, Andrew Weeding. He's uh, he's an American 1,500-meter man. He's an 1,500-meter man, but uh, he popped onto my horizon in 2010 when he ran 330 for 1,500 meters. So I don't know if you've got a calculator nearby, but if you want to do the maths on that, that's some pretty ridiculous lap times coming through there. So uh, he's a two-time Olympian. Uh, he's just a wealth of knowledge. He was, a, he was a guy I was excited to be able to chat to because I followed his career fairly closely when he was competing. And uh, I wanted to pick his brain about not only his competitive life and what he got up to when he was competing, but just how he's found stepping into retirement and uh, just hanging up his competitive spikes, his perspective, his learnings, and uh, and just other things that you'll be able to implement, uh, hopefully, into, into your own program and save you a heap of time and guesswork. So, hey, let me get out of your way and welcome to the show for the first time straight out of Portland in Oregon, Mr. Andrew Weeding. Yeah, yeah. We 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 recording. We good. You want me to start out of frame and pop in? Oh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be beautiful, bro. What have we? Uh, what have you been doing? Is it social isolation time over in Portland right now? Uh yeah, man. It's been uh, been like lockdown um, for the most part. So everyone's working from home. No one's leaving their house. Some woman today yapped at us because we were my roommate and I were like I don't know six inches apart on the sidewalk instead of the six feet. Just walking side by side, and some this woman just stood at us, gave us death-defying looks, <sighs> stormed off. I was like, "What the hell?" I I get it. This is very serious times, but this is the dude I'm living with. Like, you know, he's a fucking roommate. It's not a big deal. Right? Um, people are it's it's understandable. It's uh, scary times. It's sensitive times, man. We uh, it's been all over the news in in Melbourne the last couple of days. There was like a a learner driver who was driving around with her mum in Melbourne and got fined. 1600 Aussie dollars for, for being in the same car or traveling outside of the house. And she's like, wait, I've been in isolation with this woman for the last 
two weeks. Just it's, <laughs> it's no difference. It's a it's a panic time, man. It sounds oh like God. it's pretty similar here to what it is over there, hey? Yeah. Oh yeah. No. Yeah. People are uh, they're taking this very seriously. You know, I respect that. They probably should. Or they should. I should. I'm, I haven't been going anywhere. Either, either two of us just stay locked indoors in the places we go or maybe the store every now and then but you know we have to go out for a walk or something just to break up the monotony of the day so but <laughs> hey man it's just what it is man, i'm really i don't know how you and your housemate going but i uh i've been laughing with my wife saying wait is there any chance at all that by the end of this social isolation you're gonna love me more and she reckons it's at pretty much a zero percent chance so it's going to be interesting to, <laughs> to see her relationships all over the world. I would have thought, you know, maybe you go, go the other way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it's stuck in the day, maybe start going. <laughs> I don't know if you got that small space. Do you have like a place to get away? Like you can eat and can separate for a little bit, kind of like, okay, and come back together for dinner. I don't know. I don't have, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm in a relationship. I'm, we're not living together, but I can't imagine, you know, if I was living together, we're always on top of each other. It kind of gets to that point where you're like, I need a minute alone just to like do my thoughts or to just, look at some family guy or some stupid television just to reset my brain. <laughs> it's so true. Well, I've noticed that Jessie, uh, Jessie's my wife, She's the only reason we're allowed outside at the moment is to go and get groceries or to exercise. And she's been doing a lot of shopping and a lot of exercising, so I'm trying not to read too much into it. Yeah. <laughs> it's understandable. Uh, man, so, dude. Hopefully I'm, we can do a little running out here, though. 100%, man. You're in the best part of the world for it, aren't you? I actually, yeah. I've got a brother. My my brother-in-law lives in, in Medford, Oregon. So I've spent a little bit of time over there, but I haven't I haven't been out to Portland yet, man. It's a, is that, Are you Portland born and raised? No, 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 no. I'm from um, Vermont originally. So, um, yeah, I came out here to go to the U of O and uh, stuck around because it's just beautiful. Oregon's beautiful. There's lots of outdoor stuff, things to do, and um, it's great craft beers and all that jazz. Uh, yeah, there's a lot. It's just a beautiful place to live. Um, are we rolling? Are we recording? Yeah, man. Yeah, we're, we're going. We're going. Right. That sounds great. <laughs> craft beers. It's five o'clock here, and I'm gonna go ahead and enjoy a bit of this. What are you What are you drinking? You know what? Actually, this is called Profuse Juice. It's a ten barrel. Ten barrels local Oregon stuff. Um, oh yeah, it's fantastic. So, and actually, before I really really get into this, I, I have to, I do a ritual kind of thing before I do any sort of video podcast. So I need to turn this off. Leave the audio on because I'm, I'm going to do a, a quick double backflip to land on my pinky <laughs> and back over onto my feet. So here we go. Hold it. Okay. Okay. Did you do it? Uh, I did it. It's just a tradition I like to do before any sort of video podcast of sorts. It's just... Thank you for staying, sticking with me for that. So continue on. Sorry, yeah. So I'm from Portland. Oh my gosh, man, that's so good. I feel like I'm going to have to lift every effort of mine when it comes to a podcast because mine's pretty much, hey, ladies and gentlemen, let's get started. <laughs> Sorry, man. No, there's there's creative ways to to deal with. If you think about what what would people do if if the camera was off and they could hear you, it's like, well, let's think. What would I be doing? What could I do? Oh, I'm uh, fishing outside right now. I'm, 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 oh, I just caught a massive sailfish. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's so good, dude. I think uh, I think Portland is like a is like is a Melbourne on on steroids on steroids. To be honest, that we're all about craft beer. I don't know if you guys are obsessed with coffee and good food. And and stuff in Portland, but man, it sounds like you'd fit in uh, pretty pretty comfortably over in Melbourne. 
Yeah, uh, craft beer and coffee. That sounds pretty Portland-esque. Yeah, that's a very accurate statement, I would say. And on top of that, it's outdoors and camping and um, the occasional um, protests and <laughs> disagreements and, and uh, arguments about silly things. And But, you know, it's Portland has a lot of flavor. Oh, I can imagine, man. Especially in, uh, in this particular environment, I, uh, I would love to. I would love to watch Portland because I know, uh, uh, just like Melbourne, there's a there's a there's a real sort of politicized movement going on at the moment where everyone likes to get out on the street and shout their opinions. And what's it like, man? Is it a tense? Is it a tense sort of vibe in Portland at the moment, or is everyone? It's like a. We were at an organic shop here in Melbourne yesterday, and uh, my wife and I were laughing because we're like, these people are so into their into their health and nutrition, but they all seem so angry. And uh, my only my only perspective of Portland is off Portlandia, so I'm not sure I'm getting an accurate accurate representation. I'll, uh, I'll be honest, I haven't I haven't watched the whole series of Portlandia, but like the one or two episodes I've seen, I've like I feel like I've lived the scenarios that they're talking about. And until I saw the show, the show, everybody kept saying that, oh, it's like Portlandia. It's like Portlandia. Is it ever like Portlandia? I'm like, it can't be that accurate. And I, sure enough, if I watch it, I'm like, oh, my God. I've sat in a restaurant where someone explains to me the chicken's life <laughs> and where they come from right before I eat it. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is exactly the show. Like, I get it. Oh, wow. But I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like um, Portland's a very um, – open-minded city and every opinion uh is welcome and there's no wrong or no right answer to everything um obviously you got your pockets and congregated opinions in different parts of the city and you know people speak louder than others um but yeah i think like today like i said there was a woman who kind of gave us this this disgusting look and she muttered something and walked off and i was just like i feel like i just witnessed the internet in person like you argue say something really rude and then you storm off i was like this you just i just lived the internet in face-to-face form like, that's so rude <laughs> so that's, that's portland you know it makes it open and uncomfortable to just say what you're thinking there's got to be a limit somewhere it's a line in the sand mm. so man what year did you move to to portland or what year did you go to u of o uh, i was at oregon from 2006 to 2010 yeah. Okay. And then I reckon yeah, the first time I, I think I saw your name or saw your name in a big way was in that, I think it was Monaco where you're in 330, beat Ryan Gregson. And uh, mm-hmm. I woke up and heard that Ryan Gregson had run 331. And then I saw uh, some other white guy ahead of him and I was like, hang on a second, what is going on in this race? <laughs> and uh, I watched some of your interviews and, and heard a little bit of talk after that. But uh, that's where you sort of shot onto the scene. So that was 2010. So that was when you were still running uh, at U of O, hey? Uh, yeah, it was the the summer after I graduated. Yeah, at uh, yeah, Monaco. Monaco is a I don't know, just um, a career defining race. Uh, and I guess to your point, there you go. It is it defined my career quite quite literally. Uh, so, but that was uh, I don't know. I it was my first time really going international into Europe and competing over there. I was with my coach Vin Lanana, and we were just kind of and I was a kid playing around with like all the big kids you know and like I was just on the stage just trying to I don't know, hold my own and I remember that I'd stuck to my plan the race went off I sat in the back like I normally do and they came through at like 52 or some ridiculously fast time and I was like 53 before and so I just kind of hung back there hung back and Ryan was right there with me just kind of hanging or hanging and hanging for about two and a half three laps and then all of a sudden we're starting to move forward and that 52 ate everybody up and we went from about, I don't know, like 10th or something and skyrocketed up to like four and five. And 
um, I think on the, on that home stretch, I was just kind of gritting my teeth and running and I didn't really realize that I wasn't at my top speed until Ryan came up on my shoulder and I was like, Oh hell no. And I started <laughs> a little harder. And, uh, yeah, I came across the line, no idea what time I ran. I was just like disappointed that I finished fourth, but also had a good time because it was in Monaco. Uh, and then like flow track and my coach and everybody came over. It's like, Oh my God, you have any idea what you just run? And I couldn't really put it into perspective because, um, it was weird. I, I didn't know running like, you know, people know running. I just figured four, three and three quarter laps on the track, 1500. I'd run 337. I was pretty good. Uh, and I didn't understand the efforts to have to make it to 330. It just kind of happened. Um, fast forward about 10 years, uh, understanding what 330 means now, I just, I can't even fathom it. Like, it's unbelievable. I, I've watched that race maybe one or two more times and it's like how did i hold on to a 53 54 second lap like i could i could run that to save my life right now <laughs> god so as i sit here take a sip of my beer <laughs> <laughs> you're still looking in pretty good shape and i can say that with confidence because this uh this video is coming through nice and clear but um so how old were you when you ran that 330 that breakthrough race how old were you and what was your pb before that one um i was 22 i think yeah about 22 and uh i was a 337 um 1500 runner i think that was maybe well let's see what did I, I ran i only ran 1500s like my senior year really i ran one or two my junior year so i before that race there's probably maybe five or six races i had done i'd done the two at ncas two at regionals uh maybe one or two in between so that's six uh then maybe one my junior year seven or eight so that was that was maybe one of my ninth or tenth fifteen hundred runs I'd ever run. And so yeah, it was uh, quite a quite a surprise. And I think my progression in the fifteen went from like uh, high school was three fifty six, three fifty four, fifty six, fifty four, something like that. Three fifty four, I'd say, and and then my freshman year was down to three forty five. And then my junior year, I didn't really run it. Um, like maybe a three forty four or so. Then my senior year, uh, that's where I, you know, I it went from 345 to 338 to 337 and then 330. So it was just one of those freak years where it all just hit right. Man, you would have been the fastest bloke in Oregon at that time, and that's saying a bit with some of the talent that's come out of that town. Yeah, my God, man. Like, if you could if you could take the, the last 10 years of Oregon Duck Milers and make a 4x4 team, uh based on like taking them all at their prime i don't know there is so many names to put out on that platform so i'll be curious to see you know per, like put that out to the public i'd be curious to see with like the roster names like what four people would choose that'd be a well who have you got who are some of the guys that have come out of there obviously yourself and centro and then who mm -hmm. was some of the other not even to mention blokes like galen rupp who could probably drop a pretty mean 1500 yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there was like Ed Chesarek who ran a 350 on the indoor mile, right? Or 349. He, he broke 50. Yeah, 349 indoors on a mile. Uh, there's James Hunt who's just run like a 336, I think, right now. Um, and then there's uh, Eric Jenkins. Uh, there's uh, Elijah, well, Elijah Greer. Well, there's Mac Fleet. And I'd say Elijah Greer's in there. Um, what else do we have? Yeah, it's Galen Rupp. Um, and I'm just, I'm probably blanking on a few others, but they're, at one point, we had four guys who had all run about 357 average. Um, and I remember we took a crack at the four-by-mile collegiate record. And 
it was going to be an American record, but our we our fourth American like was had a banged up calf or something like that. So we brought it. We brought in our other guy who was an uh, international runner. His name was Shadrach. He's still running. He's running marathons. But and uh, yeah, we ended up running I think sixteen oh seven or something like that. And it was like, man, it was just one of those things where if we hit it all just right, we could have been a sub sixteen team, college team, which would have been wild. <sighs> That's uh. That's some ridiculous numbers, man. With the um, with the quality that's coming out of a town like that, I know when I was competing uh, against some of my close mates, whether we had the same coach or not, we would often we would, we would sort of would combine our training sessions, and they would get super competitive. And as a young bloke as well, probably got way too carried away. But did you did you ever jump in with the blokes like Centro and do any sessions together? It was sort of was there a, a fair rivalry between the two groups that were trained out of out of Oregon? Um, it was. It was a pretty pretty cohesive group. I think when I was there, especially so, Vin Lanana had just come on board, and I was his first recruiting class. Um, and we had like guys like AJ Acosta, another guy who come out. He ran three fifty two in the mile. So yeah, so uh, but he these this group of guys who I think Vin had made it very clear we were just trying to establish ourselves back in the NCA world. It's like uh, the Oregon of yesteryear. It's like that this big this big historic running. Um, running team um and so none of us really looked at it as kind of i don't know at least i, I didn't is looked at it as inner rivals within the group uh but centro fell into this 15 5k kind of category uh so i was in the 815 kind of group so occasionally we would overlap but it wasn't really for for a lot of the harder faster stuff like a, every now and then maybe but it wasn't really for anything faster than 55 kind of pace um but yeah i kind of gravitated more into that 8 815 like rip them up speedier workouts. But Vin had set up my sessions to be one week of like 1500 training, one week, 800 training, one week, 15, eight, 15, eight, and kind of prepared and prepared me real well for, for NCAs and therefore onward. Yeah, man. So how does that structure look? So comparing uh, just, uh, it'd be really interesting because a lot of the listeners here, um, uh, they, they come from like a, a longer distance background, but I know for a fact that there's a lot of, uh, we've got a couple of 400, 800 runners looking up. So the, the range of training or that perspective would be really interesting to find out. So um, like dividing between a eight and 15 week, what, is, what does that training structure look like? I guess from a from a winter perspective to a summer perspective, just getting ready from a for a race on a on a daily basis like would you walk us through one of your old weeks um oh it's so funny you say that because i think uh where is it it's it's somewhere around here i have my binder that has like all these weeks in it um and all my training logs in it i could pull out a week in there from like different dates and, and tell you about it if you if you really want me to go and try and find it but um the uh the winters were uh, it was it, so the, yeah those winter falls were kind of that base training and everyone kind of feel like knows this it's like up until about maybe january you're you're just building base and trying to like um, get your mileage in like get your endurance up like stretch your lungs and then for the indoor season like january february you you sprinkle some speed stuff on it while trying not to lose a whole uh, too much endurance you, you pull back on the mileage and you boost the speed a little bit um and then come like the summer session it's it's not about and endurance it's not about long workouts it's just about raw speed and there are weeks where i ran maybe like 36 40 miles a week just just but like it was like a five mile training run and then i don't know like two times a quarter at 48 and 49 or something like that just raw stuff and then like 10 strides like 11 to 12 second hundreds uh, and then go out and cool down like that would be the workout um and 
I don't know, I, I'd credit to, to Vin and his knowledge of how I train best, but there's also a bit of genetics to it as well, I'm sure. But yeah, Vin, Vin did a, a great job, um, knowing when to push and when to put a lot of mileage on it. And yeah, the winter time was a, a, a good balance of both. And then in the summertime, it was just the hell with longer, longer intervals, the hell with, um, tempo runs and fart legs. It was just like, get on the track, put on the spike, sharpen up and rip the hell out of it. Yeah. That beautiful. So during the winter, how many miles were you, were you covering a week on a average week? Do you reckon? Um, I was a different animal in college. So guys like AJ, Galen, um, even Centro, like they, they were running upwards 60, 70, 80. You know, some of them are over that. Um, I was pushing 50 to 60. I think that was probably about my sweet spot. Um, I think my first week at Oregon, oh, I'll never forget it. I, I came in with a high of 56 miles uh, that summer in high school. And I came in feeling like the bottom shelf because I was looking at this number one recruiting class, AJ Costa, Kenny Kloss, the Detman twins, like, you know, Nicole Blood, like these big names that are just like highlighting this entire <laughs> program. And then there's like Andrew Weeding and who's that guy? Maybe some farmer from Vermont or something. <laughs> so so I felt like that bottom shit, like the bottom rung. I was like, I cannot fold here because I can't lose this step in this program. So I put I put 74 miles in the first week I was there, and I I gutted out my first workout, which I remember to this like, exactly this day. It was like I was broken after that. And so after a week of trying to step up to the plate at those big boy levels, I, my legs were sore. I was broken. I was in for massages. I was, and Vin immediately was like, it's like "No, you're done. Red shirting, cross. You're just getting your body ready." Oh. So, yeah, that, that's the kind of mileage I was used to. It's like the one the miles that counted. Yeah, so what you learned pretty quickly that those big miles just gonna, weren't going to suit your your big long legs. You needed something a little bit shorter, a little bit sharper, and uh, uh, and just try and make a balance between those two. It's interesting, man, as well because I know in the college scene, and I, I can only imagine it's it's similar, if not worse, over in the states. That there's a there's a college mentality or a young kids mentality that you know the the more you do, the better you're going to be. And uh, you yeah. learn you learn pretty quickly that uh, not everyone's legs can hold up to that kind of distance, and you only have to look at an ultra marathoner to see how slow twitch their fibers in their legs are to, to see they're not going to be busting out any fifteen hundred times that are going to be. Uh, oh man, <laughs> we uh, we did um, when we got when I got to OTC, we we're doing a bit more of the lifting and kind of like the form work. We were we we measure our progress every four weeks by doing these little tests, and, and one of the tests was the vertical test, and. I don't know, everyone, you know, you know, how high can you jump? And, uh, it was, it was hilarious because we, the first couple times we did it, when you jump off the ground you, in your head, you're like, I am like holding myself in the air. I must be jumping like a basketball player because I am so high off the ground right now. This is incredible. So by like the third or fourth test, like we started to film them. And I go back after doing this jump test, being like, oh, I must have like a, I don't know, a 12 and a half inch bro. 13, 14 inch vertical. I've got to be jumping up well over the rim. This is unreal. Go back and watch the video, and it's like maybe four and a half inches or seven <laughs> inches. Oh, really? Come on. Like that, that looks pathetic. <laughs> so, how were you looking after yourself in between the sessions, man? I heard you mention briefly that you're getting some massage work done, and um, uh, but it's just, it, it often blows my mind, even at an elite level, how overlooked the, the recovery part of your. your like your running training is, um, were there certain uh, structures and, and practices you had in place to make sure that your legs were, were fired up and ready to go come next session? Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, 
there's kind of, I got into a, a routine of kind of getting a massage every week, uh, especially in the summertime when you're when you're ripping up the speed and really putting putting it on your body. Like I got in the habit of needing a massage maybe every week or every other week just to kind of keep my body flushed. And I, I the the uh, Vin kept saying, you know, "Long legs, long levers. You're a lot. You're a little heavier than most. Like you have to keep your legs as flushed out and you know it's good to go." And it made total sense. So, um, but yeah, on top of that, there's there's there are things I now understand at the time that I didn't, uh, where it's like, you know, you, you separate two big workouts on like a Monday and a Saturday. And then on a Wednesday, you do like a tempo run, like uh, something simple, a three to five mile tempo run at a controlled pace. For me, it was, it was like 520 or so. And just 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 a little fasting run, but not up like under your race pace. So you just to, to really move the blood through your legs and flush out all that lactic acid from like the Monday workout. And then you work out Wednesday. You had the Thursday and Friday to kind of like really fully recover. Then Saturday, you knew you were going to go go into the hurt locker. Mm. So, what was that? That was is that three pretty solid sessions a week, just spread out uh, with a day break in between that you just said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, this is this is a bit more transitioning from Vin's setup, my college setup, into a bit more of the professional setup. Um, and we had it was like three workouts one week. Uh, two workouts the other like a monday wednesday saturday or a tuesday friday kind of setup um and it really kind of it varied on the week and you know, the workout and the time of year but yeah it came down to like usually three a week or two a week on a I think actually it was a tuesday thursday saturday or a tuesday friday that's what it was uh and so yeah it, it came yeah depending on the season you kind of knew what you were in for yeah. Okay. And that pretty much continued all the way to 2018 when you put the brakes on and said, actually, um, it's, it's time for something new. Walk us through that process, man. Like, uh, I'm jumping around a little bit, but I'm just interested because I know you finished up your, your running yeah. career, career quite young. What's that? That's, uh, like about 29 or, or 30 when you, when you finished it up, were you? I was 30, 30, I think. I don't know, man. The years start to get blurred together after 25. You start forgetting it. <laughs> but I, yeah, 30, 31, somewhere around there. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I'd always been a guy who just enjoyed the thrill of chasing his passions. Uh, and in college I just discovered running and I was so fortunate to become a part of this program that just embellished it and this community that just totally loved it, just fueled my passion, like learning new things. I was racing, I was winning this completely thick new world to me. Um, that's why when I ran 3:30, I was just so flabbergasted because i didn't really understand what it really meant uh and like there was a conversation the year after i had a training par- partner russell brown i said hey uh, all right so what do we got to run this year what's the qualifying standards like it's sub 335 or 355 or something oh okay cool i think i'll probably go to france or somewhere like 332 and then uh, i remember you know, fun around 334s and i was so like nonchalant about it and my training partner had to look me in the face and be like I don't think you understand what you've just accomplished. And I was like, ah, it's whatever. It's circle running. It's all fun. So, but yeah, when, you know, that's the kind of mentality I had. And then I went into the pro circuit and, uh, I don't know, it was just such a different kind of feel. So college was about chasing points and what can I do for the team and how do I keep my teammates in the run for things? Like what kind of championship can we win together? And, I don't know. There's a certain element to this sport that involves a bit of selfishness. Uh, and if you want to be great at any sport, you really have to em- embellish that selfishness. You got to be willing to accept that. Yeah, I'm going to have to say no to birthdays or nights out or friends, parties or weddings or whatever to, to really dedicate yourself to the craft. And, 
uh, I was not really aware, not really willing to accept that to, to a degree. And so when I got to the professional world, um, my team was taken from me and well, not taken, my, my team moved on and, or I moved on and left my team behind. I don't know how you want to look at it, but, uh, and I just, I kind of got, kind of got stuck wondering, well, what am I fighting for now? Like what's, what's, what am I, what am I hankering down here? I made an Olympic team. I, I guess a medal's the next big one and a world record. I tried to like center myself around the hunger for world records and Olympic, Olympic medals. Um, but I was never someone who, who did it for the hardware who, or who did it for the glory of being on top of the podium. I did it because I loved the reaction it gave my peers or I loved the, the inspiration it gave the people around me and seeing their visible happiness from tribute to this team was just such a motivator for me. Um, so I was looking, I was looking to find what is it that's motivating me? Uh, and I guess I know this is kind of dragging on probably longer than it needs to be, but, um, there was, there was a year in 2013 uh, I was right, right after 2012, I made the team again, like barely. And I was like, okay, 13 happened, came around. And I just, my head was in so many different places. I wasn't like happy. I was disappointed all the time. I was frustrated. I wasn't, there was a lot of emotion that was just flying between the ears. Um, and at the U S championships, I squeaked into the final. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I hit it, I hit the auto qualifier like in the prelim and, but like it took a lot of effort to do it. And I looked over as I finished and I saw like Matt Centro made it look very easy. Like Ben Blankenship looked pretty comfortable. Lopez looked very comfortable. But I just knew that I like gritted like tooth and nail to make it to that final. And already in my head, I was like, I don't think I have it. I, my body doesn't feel like it has it. And so I, uh, I got to that final and sure enough, I finished, I got to 300 meters to go and i was in the pack and everybody shot by me and i don't know if you probably understand it it's like if your brain decides at any point in this race i don't think i got it today the whole body shuts down like it's just there's you can fight as hard as you want your body already knows like you're not in it we're done we quit so that's what happened we'll have to go um my body started to kind of feel a little achy and i had already been thinking about the right day before and like my entire year. And so that was it. And, uh, everyone shot by and I finished and I just, I don't know, there's, it's kind of an emotion. It's, it's a vulnerable thing to admit, but I, I didn't, I just shot off the track. I took the time for the interviews and walked through and kind of held it tight, held, held it together. And I got to, uh, the warm up corral, put on my clothes and left and coach Lee, you want to talk? No, I don't want to talk. And I just left. And I sat down in this neighborhood behind a car, line of parked cars and I just started crying. It was like, this is not what is fun. Like, this is not fun at all. Uh, and so I had to change my whole perspective, my outlook, what I was like doing. Um, and yeah, go, I just basically grow up. That's kind of how I looked at it. it was, uh, and so moving forward, I, I changed coaches. I changed my perspective. I changed my outlook on it. Um, and 14 was like kind of that regrowth, rebirth year if you will uh 15 I, I qualified for the pan am teams i got selected for the pan am teams and I, I won that medal and uh to me that was that was it like, I, I knew this is this is a big moment for me um i know it's not an olympic medal i know it's not a world medal but it is an international race and i i felt i got the podium the u.s flag i got the uh, my anthem that was it this is a huge moment um 
And so walking off that after 15, 16 trials came around and it was like my mind was struggling to stay focused. It's just, it, it all seemed to kind of pitter out. And, um, every, I don't know, you have to want it. You have to want it so bad. And, uh, I felt like I had already kind of got it to a degree i didn't get the medal or world record but you know i'd been to the olympic stage which everybody had kind of envied uh, i'd done it twice and i was going for a third time and i was like you know i i'm gonna be fine if i don't make it like it's not gonna be the end of the world i i can i can live with that if i don't uh and that's when i started to realize like i don't think my head's in this like it used to be uh so 17 came around and i realized i was starting to watch the clock and it was just um it was became, I, I remember the, the moment it happened too. I was at the Portland track festival and, uh, I was, I was trying to, so hard to kind of convince myself that I was here just to compete. Like, don't care what the time was. Don't care how, like where, where I end up finishing. All I care about is just, just fighting tooth and nail to beat people in front of me. Um, and the coming around the first lap, all, immediately my eyes went down to the clock and I was like, Oh, 60, oh, 61. And I, and I suddenly I realized if I wanted to race the clock, I could stay at practice and do this. Like, this is not why I'm training. Like I shouldn't be training for a time. This is the most pathetic reason to be competing. It's not even competing if you're looking at a clock. So, so I, after that 17 wrapped up and in the fall winter came around and I was just like, you know what, if I'm just, not enjoying it my passion for it has kind of fizzled down to a small flame of an ember if you will i i feel like i i'm banging my head against the wall it's not going to move so i just rather than spend any more time trying to do this when i'm not enjoying it i'm just going to go ahead and hang, hang them up so it was uh it was a pretty easy decision but um yeah no it's i walked away happy satisfied content i know it's I know a lot of people will probably, why didn't you take, you should want to get the medal. You should want the Olympics. You should want world records. And it's like, that's not what I was ever fighting for. Like I was always doing it for, for what I could contribute to a bigger, a, uh, a bigger, Oh, what is it? What's the word I'm looking for? Be a part of a bigger thing. Um, and the team was the bigger thing and losing the team was a big part of my passion for the running. Mm. Man, there's, there's about, 24 things that I've just uh, taken and put up on a pin board in my mind. So I'm going to try and get back to a couple of them. But the first thing is just from a practical perspective is uh, like I, as you're explaining the the racing, the clock, I think that's one thing that in so many conversations I have with people and, and know about my own running experiences, whenever I started looking at a clock through a race, it was always uh, the, the foundation to a really painful race because not only are you racing the clock, but psychologically you start going, oh, how am I feeling? Am I adjusting well? Am I going to be able to come home quick? And uh, Matt, one thing, uh, sorry to jump around a little bit, but it was, uh, there, was there was a few things. So before I forget, I want to get to it. You mentioned – Sorry, um, there's a lot there. No, no, it was, it was great, man. You mentioned that uh, I think it was 2014 after after your race, you went and you, you, you sat out the – where were you? At the back of the track, skipped past your coaching. 13, 13 yeah. yeah. And you were saying that yeah, you really just needed a perspective shift. And this is something that I'm really interested in because I think someone like yourself who's run the times that you have – and who've uh, have competed a number of Olympics, um, I think uh, an up-and-comer or a, a newbie to the sport would look at someone like you and just assume, oh, if only I could get to that, then that 
sense of satisfaction or that sense of accomplishment would be done, but it, they don't realize that as you progress, your yeah, expectations of, of what you want to achieve start to progress with you. So I was really interested just to delve into that a little bit and hear about the psychology behind that because uh, uh, when you said, okay, you'd made some great achievements, run some fast times, but there was a perspective shift that needed to change and, and, and something that you changed. How, how did you go about changing your perspective? Were there any particular strategies or any particular techniques that you used that you found helpful? Um, yeah, I think the, the biggest kick in the pants was finishing last at the U.S. Championships. That was, I mean, uh, I think, uh, I, my whole college career had been full of success. And then my first 2011, my first U S championships after that in an, a professional singlet, I finished fourth. Um, and I cried there too. Cause I, I'd always been kind of a top three finisher. I was a podium guy, like losing to me was not something I could like really swallow, which is good. That's what you want to feel when you're in the sport. Like losing should hurt more a whole lot. So like, that was what I felt. And um, and then that, and then 13 happened and I uh, finished dead last. And I, you know, I, you know, I kept my composure cause you know, you, but like, it's just, it hurt, it hurt so much. Um, and it was just that kind of eye opening experience that you're, you're not invincible. Um, and every college kid will think that to a degree I came out thinking I will run three thirty for the rest of my life or, or something close to that or even better maybe. Um, but the reality is you're, you're not invincible and it takes a pretty painstaking experience to really snap you back into reality. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people are, may have a tough time relating to that because some of the, a lot of people race and a lot of people lose and it's not very often you find someone who is so consistently uh, used to winning. Um, so losing is part of sport and the more you can kind of accept it more and kind of grow with it, uh, the better winner you become. Uh, and for me, I hadn't d- done a lot of losing. And when I did, it wasn't in running, it was in soccer or whatever, where I could put the blame on somebody else and move on. Uh, but with this situation in running, the only person to blame here is really myself. Uh, and so it was, it was hard. Yeah. I, I, I walked away. Um, I talked with my coach about it cause he, Vin at the time was starting to really beef up what Eugene and track town was becoming. Uh, and I could tell his, his priorities were shifting in that direction. Uh, and so I felt like the best move was to maybe change coaches so that he could really focus on what he wants to accomplish. Whereas I could continue focusing on what I want to accomplish. So that was the, the, the first big move. And, um, he was very understanding and very supportive. And I think it was probably the best move for both of us. Uh, and then I met Mark Rowland and I think, his his the the difference in coaching was is really kind of a bit more of the attitude of it vim had this free kind of outgoing college mentality where you know you got immature kids and you got to be able to like roll with whatever immature kids bring to the table uh and then mark had this you're a professional now like you need to approach your day-to-day schedule like a professional would um and it was a real kind of growing up moment and i think uh, i remember i don't know if i was swear on this or not but i remember like we we i remember sitting down with him and being like uh mark asked me like are you okay you sure you want to do this, this is a very professional level like this is going to be some hard stuff and i was like coach with all due respect i'm not a pussy <laughs> and i as those words come out of my mouth i was like i i feel like i hadn't finished the sentence so it was like i'm not a pussy 
but I did cry behind the car after I finished last <laughs> U.S. National Election. <laughs> so yeah, it was very contradicting in my head. But, <laughs> but he was like, he was very okay. I, I get you want to be a part of this. I understand. So he helped me kind of formulate and, like, my brain and see what I'm doing and what I'm being paid for and the big picture of what I'm trying to accomplish. And uh, I was able to structure my day to get the most out of it to to kind of really grow and become a, a stronger bigger better performer um and yeah i came down to looking at everything nutrition to form work to drills core like the running itself and then the days off massage recovery all, all these things um that i'd really not thought about and i never really took the time to learn because i just thought i was invincible and i was going to be great forever uh he opened my eyes and realized there's like you can't just be invincible. Like that's something you can maybe get by with for a year or two. And that was like, Oh, eight or nine, 10, those years where I was just like kind of flying by the seat of my pants. Mm -hmm. But he's like, you're in a professional now. Like you need to approach your days as a professional. You need to consider the effects of alcohol and like staying up past 10 or doing all these things and stuff I hadn't really thought about to consider. And, uh, and he, yeah, it, it just helped me having a professional coach, changes the way you approach the sport uh he opened my eyes to uh and that's that that to me i will forever thank mark roland for for helping me kind of put me on the right track mm. so when it came to the point where you're like you know what uh i, I think i've had enough of this and I've, I've had my time in the sun it's it's time to time to wrap it up like how, how did you go about that because i even found in my own experience i wasn't running at the level that you were running at but uh to speak to my coach and even to my wife and my friends who who knew me as an athlete and my whole life you mentioned earlier that selfishness to compete at a hard at a high level is 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 almost it just comes hand in hand with the territory i found the same thing and to just to have those conversations and to you know potentially I don't know. It, it almost feels like the severing of a relationship, even though it's um, it, it's it's so much deeper than that. How, how did you go about making that decision? Um, it, uh, I don't know. Run, running. My dad had this quote to me when I well, quote. My dad told me this once. He's uh, when I was in this distress of trying to be great and good all the time. He just sat me down, looked at me, and goes you're playing a game. Like I, I know you don't say I play track, but in the end, at the end of the day, you're playing a sport. It's a game. Like you shouldn't make a game as complicated as it is. Uh, I know that football and soccer have all these rules and plays and things you have to like really think about, but it's just perfecting your craft to be good at a game. I was like, Oh man, that's so simple. <laughs> like when you think about it, it's just that simple. Um, and it was, uh, it had already kind of manifested itself in me that I needed uh, to chase this perfection. I had to do A, B, C all the way down to Z. Like there was a thing I could be good at or be better at every day, 26 different things. Um, and I think when, when you start to obsess, when you lose the joy and fun of what you're doing, uh, and it becomes an obsession, uh, I think there is, there is a, Again, there's there's a fine line between obsession and dedication, uh, and I think in this sport you have to be dedicated, but you got to be able to balance the the joy of what you're doing with it. Uh, if you go over, you become obsessed, and if you're obsessed with being great, that you've lost the focus focus of enjoying what you're doing, 
you're only going to make it harder for yourself. Mm. So it's, it's a, it, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting balance. And honestly, and I, I credit Matt Sensowitz as he, he has found this, un, this fantastic balance. And I mean, granted, he's a, very, a great racer, but he's very tactical and un, he can do it, do it all. But, uh, you know, he, he's very good. Um, but he doesn't obsess over it. Like if you know anything about his social media presence, it's, you know, video games, candy and girls, uh, <laughs> who he's, He's now he's now a taken taken man, but at the time he was like it was those are the three categories. What high school kid wouldn't love this guy, right? So that was uh, that's where I sort of started to lose it, where I was like I I need to cut out all of this fun and just hone in on this dedica- dedication, um, which just turned into to obsession. And when I when I started to realize it, I was like you know I don't think I can go back from here. You can't just turn off an obsession and just fix it. So I. I my body was hurting, my motion, my brain was hurting. Uh, I, the results were showing in that regard. And so I, at the end of the day, I said, you know, I, I think I'd probably have more fun taking on the challenge of life's next chapter. Mm, mm. It's, uh, it's funny, uh, that quote that you mentioned or the advice that your dad gave you. It's something that when you're in the heat of battle or when you're in the middle of training so hard for a sport that you committed your whole life to and everyone in your life is seemingly involved in that sport it's uh, it seems like so much more than a than a game doesn't it and it was funny I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this but when I left the running scene after about six months it it blew my mind it blew my mind how much people just didn't care about running let alone middle distance runners and I would look at the blokes in Australia who would would run a fast time and then strut around like they're the king and to everyone else you're just a skinny bloke who's run around a track a little bit faster than someone else and and it, it was it was sort of shocking to me because so much of my self-worth and so much of my uh, my value dictated on the time on the clock or the place or the color of the medal that I was wearing around my neck after a race and to to actually step away from that scene and to look back at it and go wait wait a second my whole sense of worth and value was was dependent on that like how that is so embarrassing have you found that that's been the case for yourself now you've stepped out of the sport and you've seen it from a, I guess, a spectator's perspective. Yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely, definitely do. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah. You bring that up. Cause they, I don't know. I, I support like my friends still in the sport. I, I'm, I actually, I credit them. I'm very impressed with some of them, how far they've taken their career. Um, and I wish them all the best, but it's like, you step outside the running community, even like you go to any merit, like local marathon or anything, like any running event, turkey trot, whatever, and you just kind of pull someone aside and you say, "Hey, uh, you know, I ran three thirty in the fifteen hundred. They'd be like, "I, what are you talking about? It's like six forty five. What are you talking about? <laughs> You're racing in the three thirty that this afternoon. That's great, really fantastic. <laughs> like people, like nobody knows really what that means. And so, yeah, to to be so like. I don't know, self-absorbed in this, uh, you to, to step out and finally look and kind of breathe. You're like, Oh man, that was, who was that guy? Good Lord. I was just lost in mileage and numbers and nutrition and training. And whew. you know, now I go for like the occasional run just to, you know, enjoy a, a nice ale or two, or, uh, just kind of keep the, keep the weight down. But it's never, it's never out of, I feel a, a need or a, a desire. It's just, it's just a, a passion, a joy now. So I, I found that, yeah, I took a year off of running entirely. And then I kind of got that itch. I was like, I want to go for a run. And like wanting to go for a run instead of having to go for a run is a very different feeling. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I think the, 
to go out and go for a nice stroll is a nice feeling. Of course, I have you know, all these aches and pains that I brought with me when I left, but you know, I can't do much about that. <laughs> so, what is uh, what is what does post running life look for you now, man? As you as you sip your craft beer. So, apart from a few more of those and um, just having some unstructured time and and just running when you feel like it. What? How has life life changed for you since you've finished up as a professional athlete? Uh, it's, it's changed a lot actually. Yeah, a lot. I, um, there was a year and a half after I left, um, where I was just, I don't know. I mean, I made the announcement. I had a couple of interviews, um, and I finally, you know, I shut the door and I turned around and looked at this like small little apartment that I was living in with my dog at the time. And it's just like, Oh fuck now what? So <laughs> you just had this like freak out moment. You're like, Oh my God. Okay. I can, I can do this. Uh, what, what the hell am I supposed to do now? All right. Um, so um, I took about a year to kind of just play, so to speak, like, cause you know, when you're in, in the sport, you, you have your fun, but you know, you kind of just, you're, you're locked in it for 10 months of the year. So I took some time to kind of just not worry about being fit so much and just enjoy what life had for me out here. And I went on some road trips. I went and travel a little bit and enjoyed a couple of craft beers. Um, but yeah, I, after about a year, I was like, okay, I need to. I need to get my life in order. I need to be doing something. So um, uh, I started sniffing out opportunity. I mean, I looked at Nike from, I looked at, uh, you know, any, sh- all the various shoe pairs. I looked at a potential sales position as a, at a uh, software company, which is, I knew nothing about, but figured it's worth taking a crack at, you know, whatever the next chapter was, I, I was like excited to, to try and be good at it. And finally, after kind of uh, hunting for, I don't know, a good six months or so, uh, uh, I know a job kind of opened up and came my way via a friend, uh, a close friend. And she said that, you know, we need some help at, at my company called on, I had never really, I knew about it cause I knew she worked there. But I didn't really know a whole lot about the company. Yeah, sure. On. Okay. So, yeah. We're in sports marketing. We need help kind of uh, recruiting and signing athletes and getting our kind of our brand out there in the track and field world. And I was like, Oh man. I can still work in track and field and I can kind of have a foot in the door. I don't have to be in shape. And like, this is a perfect opportunity. Like, so yeah, <laughs> thankfully I, I, I owe her a lot. Like I, I offer her beer all the time. Cause it's like, yeah, I, I owe her a whole lot. Cause uh, I think it came down to working in, in, at on in sports marketing or being a sales associate at a software company that I am making cold calls and knew nothing about. And so uh, oh yeah, I'm forever be thankful that I, I I love what I do and it's it's kept me in the sport um, and it's kept me I don't know it's exciting because it's such a it's a new chapter. Yeah, awesome man, awesome. Have you seen uh, many of Nick Simmons' YouTube videos over the last couple of months? Uh, I've seen a few of them. Yeah, he's uh, man, I, I've, I've, I was in a couple of them actually. So he, uh, I, uh, I, I that's that was the route I initially kind of started to want to want to go. Um, but, uh, I, it was, it's tough to do YouTube as a one man band. Like I was, I was the, the, I was the talent. I was the director. I was the editor as a cinematographer, videographer, film. I did all, all the parts, all the hats. And like, I don't know if you're familiar with what my pro career was like, but there's this small little part of it that I was doing like these silly videos, which I brought, brought a lot of joy to, to do, but, um, it was just a lot of production to get mm. these little videos together. And Nick, Nick's gone, done the right way, done the right route. He found a guy who likes to edit and shoot. And he's got this good artistic eye. I was like, man, that's how I should have done it. But I think, uh, you know, I, 
I, I still find ways to, 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 to create silly little videos. And I guess TikTok's the new thing now. Now, God, I sound old. But I <laughs> it's like, but it's like shit. Like I, I, I'm having fun goofing off in various different ways. <laughs> that track Landy is the, the other show that we do. That's uh, I kind of get my fixing there. Beautiful, man. I actually I had no idea that you'd uh, that you'd been in any of Nick's videos or that you'd sort of started to trick down that path a bit. Because I was going to say, bro, with your personality and your your character, sure. I reckon you would dominate that food. You should you should get back into it, man. I would love to watch you on camera. Oh man, I would I would love that. I gotta find I gotta connect with the right people to kind of get that going. But I just I don't know. I always love I've loved movies. I love watching them. I love like watching how camera angles work, how, how things. I'm like, oh, this lighting's interesting. Oh, that actor says that. I bet you that was a blooper, but they're using that anyway. All these little things, nuances when you watch a film, things you shouldn't be doing and just enjoying the story. But I just love that <laughs> that, that, that field. But uh, yeah, no, but I'm I'm in a position. I'm in a role now that. Uh, garners a little bit of respect in the running community in the track and field community uh and so like if i'm playing the the front man of this big big brand uh the last thing i want to hear is when i go to recruit some co- a college kids hey what you heard of on hey aren't you that guy who was doing those videos when you're running around in your underwear <laughs> uh, yeah uh, that's not quite what i was going for but it's, yeah <laughs> no awesome man that's really good dude i'll um We'll, we'll we'll hit pause on this one. Have you still? How's your energy levels going, man? You're still coming across as though you got energy for days, but I want to make sure you're just not good at covering up how tired you are. No, I'm not, <laughs> not tired at all, man. <laughs> five o'clock hits, and I'm just like, oh yeah, we're we're good. I'm fine. We, we can roll whatever, man. I'm easy. Awesome, brother. Well, we've been going. We've been recording now for a, a, about an hour or so. But I was going to ask, uh, do you want to jump across? We'll do a we'll do a relax running community episode where i wanted to pick your brains on just some simple practical tools that you would teach people whether they're young college athletes coming through or um the new person to the track who's just got no idea about where to improve how to improve what to focus on um they might require mm. a even more grand entry to the camera than what you gave the rest of the population of the running world um so just as long as you got uh-huh. one more of those in you i just want to give you a warning <laughs> All right. Hey, I'm here. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, I'll back the camera up. We'll go through a few drills. Yeah, let's just do the whole thing. <laughs> well, man, for the uh, for the public podcast, wait, massive thanks for, for making the time. I, I know there'll be thousands of people around the world who, who would love to just hear the behind the scenes with a bloke like yourself, and, and I'm one of them, man. So uh, I really appreciate you making the time there. Yeah, no worries, man. No, yeah, it's been... Uh... It's fun. I, I was into. Co- I did coaching. I coached coached the high school kids for a little while, and man, that kept me young and youthful. Tell you that, but it was uh, it was fun because my brain was so pro. Like, like I just assumed like because everyone I talked to for like the last decade or so was like new running, and to go from that frame of mind to like the high school brain, where it's like you say, "All right, go go warm up and do some drills." They're like, how far? How fast? What drills? Like, what do I need to do? Can I wear my shorts? Do I need my shoes? Should I bring spikes? Like, oh, God, I forgot you're stupid. <laughs> so I had to, like, retrain how to teach all this out. I was like, yeah, I forgot. You guys don't know any of this stuff. <laughs> awesome, man. That's good. Well, I'm going to tap into your, I'm gonna tap into your brain uh, in about 30 seconds on the new one. But for the public one, dude, you're a legend. Thanks for, thanks for making that time, man. We'll leave it there. Yeah. No worries, man. Thanks for having me.